Let us pray. Eternal God, you are worthy of all our thanks and praise. We praise you today and always. Pour your Spirit upon us so that we do not hinder your grace and mercy. Pour your Spirit upon us so that we joyfully share you with others, loving one another as you have loved us. We offer this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead, restoring life to us and to all of creation. Amen. You may be seated. The first lesson is from the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grant to you and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful member of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to you your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, and we have not ceased praising for you, praying for you, and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God, God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thus ends the reading of the first lesson.
To honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, please stand for the reading of the gospel. A reading of the gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. We've all heard the adage, familiarity breeds contempt. I don't think that's the case here. I think on any list of the best known and best loved parables of Jesus, you would find this one at the top, if not on the top of the list, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know it. Non-church attending, casual glance only at the Bible, occasionally readers know it. We know this story, we cherish it. We don't have contempt for it at all. So perhaps in this instance what we should say is familiarity breeds complacency. It's not that we dislike the parable. We actually love the parable. It's that we've heard the parable so often we don't hear it any longer. It reminds me, this parable is sort of like a, a favorite line from a movie that we love to quote on every opportunity we have, but we never get the quote quite right, but we think we have the quote right. You know, Luke, I am your father. That's not the line. The line of the movie is, no, I am your father. Or, 
what we got us here is a failure to communicate. Well, that's, that's not the line. The line is what we got us here is failure to communicate. It's not quite right, and that little bit of not quite right makes a difference in understanding the line. That little bit of not quite right makes a difference in understanding the parable. It matters here. So a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. And there's our first mistake. We think the good Samaritan. You will notice that Jesus never says the Samaritan is good. Jesus never makes commentary on the Samaritan's moral or ethical qualifications. He simply says he was compassionate, he was moved with pity, and he showed mercy. He doesn't say this man was good. For all we know, he was a corrupt businessman, or he yelled at his children, or he kicked his dog. But we hear the good Samaritan because we've heard it so often, we hear what we want to hear. It makes it easy for us to go through this. We persist in the familiarity of it so much so that once it started, what we began to do is shift to this week's grocery list or to-do list while Frazier prattles on to get to the moral of the parable. The moral of the parable we all know being Jesus wants us to help our neighbors. Jesus wants us to meet human need. Jesus wants us to be neighbors even to our enemies. Really? Is that really what the parable's about in its fullness, in its height and breadth and depth? Is that everything there is to this story? Amy Jill Levine is a professor of biblical studies at Vanderbilt Seminary, and she's recently written a book entitled Short Stories by Jesus, which is, her, which is a study of Jesus' parables. And in it, she writes this, If we hear a parable and think, I really like that, or worse, fail to take any challenge, we are not listening well enough. Is this parable really what you think it's about? Because it doesn't really begin with the parable, does it? It begins with the lawyer. And while we usually focus on the parable and the characters in the parable, and we actually try to identify with one of the characters in the parable, and most of us want to identify with the Samaritan because, after all, he's the hero of the parable, and that feels good to us, much better than identifying with the priest or the Levite. I want us to spend a little time this morning looking at the lawyer. And surprisingly, I want to say a good word for the lawyer. I want to, I want to come a bit to the lawyer's defense, not just because I thought about being one, but because I think, actually, the lawyer may represent you and me best in this story. Keep in mind, this is a canon lawyer. In other words, this is an expert in religious law. This isn't the person who writes your will or helps settle your estate or handles your traffic ticket for you. This isn't the person who even argues a criminal case before a jury. There is no John Grisham character in this lawyer. This lawyer is the kind of lawyer who can quote you paragraph and subparagraph from the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church. This lawyer is the guy who knows the book of Leviticus front and back and even knows the rabbinic midrash, the commentary on the book of, uh, book of Leviticus. This lawyer is your pastor. This lawyer is your bishop. This lawyer is somebody who has taught Sunday school his entire life. Now before we go any further, I, I just want to remind you that, that reading the Bible is hard work. If you really want to understand it, you've got to really want to understand it. You've got to really work at it. You, we've got the Bible as it's presented to us, as it's come down through translation and time and centuries. And then there's the Bible that you start to peel away and it starts to reveal itself more and more until we discover that we're not reading the Bible so much as the Bible is reading us. 
And this story is a great example of that. We hear this story, and the first thing we do is we judge the lawyer. Somewhere in some pulpit today, I will absolutely guarantee you some preacher is quoting from Shakespeare's Henry IV and quoting the line, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers, with absolutely no sense of the irony with which Shakespeare wrote that line or the fact that it doesn't apply here. We judge this lawyer, and we judge him not because of what Jesus says to him, but because of Luke's editorial commentary about him. Read it carefully and read it deeper. What lawyers do, what scholars do, even of the religious variety, are challenge one another. That's what they do. For Luke to say that he was trying to test Jesus, and the word's only used one other time in the gospel. It's used when the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. For Luke to equate the lawyer with the devil is to give you Luke's editorial bias. Jesus doesn't seem to take offense at the lawyer. Rather, he engages him in the conversation. The lawyer asks a question. Jesus, in good rabbinic fashion, asks a question back. That's how rabbis teach. You answer a question with a question. The story is told that the student asked the rabbi once, Teacher, why do rabbis always answer questions with questions? And the teacher responded, Why shouldn't rabbis always answer questions with questions? And the truth be known, for Jesus' original audience, lawyers, religious scholars would have been admirable characters, respected and admired for their knowledge of the Torah and for the closeness with which they lived to it. You'd want this guy teaching your Sunday school class, and yet we judge him. We judge him because Luke said he was testing Jesus. We judge him because Luke says in a later line he was seeking to justify himself. How do we know, other than Luke's commentary that he was seeking to justify himself, that he was trying to justify himself? I mean, there's no other clue in the text to tell us that. And besides, even if that's what he's doing, let's be sympathetic to him, because let's admit it, that's what we do, right? We try to justify ourselves. We try to make ourselves look better in front of one another and in front of God. It's what we do. Almost any given Sunday, I will be at the door, and one of you who's not been here for two or three weeks will immediately at the door begin to explain to me where you've been the last two or three weeks. You justify yourself. Somebody came out the last service and said, well, I was going to tell you where I've been the last two weeks, but I don't think I'm going to now. <laughs> we justify ourselves. Every year during stewardship campaign, we'll get at least one commitment card, and this will be written on it. We'd like to give more, but we can't because justify yourselves. You respond to a call from the nominations committee, I wish I could serve, I'd like to do more, I'd like to serve, but I can't right now because, and you give us all the reasons why we justify ourselves. He's just doing, he's just doing what we do. And he's asking the question that we ask. He's asking our question in this story, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Give me the to-do list. Tell me what I have to do. And, I mean, isn't that why we basically come on Sundays? Isn't that what we're after? Isn't that the implied question we bring? What do I have to do to have eternal life, a quality of life with God now and life with God forever later? And the thing is, and it's huge, it's the thing on which the whole story hinges. The thing is, it's the wrong question. 
because it's a question that suggests if you do one thing, if you can just do one thing. In fact, the tense of the verb in Greek is that. What one thing must I do is what it really means. It suggests if you can do one thing, then that's all you need to do. It's an efficiency of salvation. What one thing must I do? Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Put your whole trust in his grace. Promise to serve him as your Lord. That's it. You're good. Buy a bag of groceries for Dorcas. That's it. You're good. Pack a backpack for backpack buddies. That's it. You're good. Put an extra 20 in the offering plate for hurricane relief. That's it. You're good. Buy cookies from the Bosnia team. That's it. Stock from ASP. That's, that's it. Say a prayer. What one thing do I have to do? That's all I want to know. What one, one thing... And this is where the lawyer needs our defense, or at the very least, he needs our sympathy because he's thinking like we think. Or either we think like he thinks. Because we think it's a matter of doing one thing. It's not a matter of living a full life of righteousness. He's focusing, Levine points out, on his own salvation when he should be, Judaism teaches, focusing on loving God and neighbor. He would have done well to have heeded Rabbi Paul who wrote to the Colossian church, live lives worthy of the calling, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work. But now that becomes the rub. How do we bear fruit in every good work? This is where we need some clarity. If that's what we're supposed to do, love God and love neighbor, then to whom? Who? Who's worthy of our love? Who's worthy of our care? Who's worthy of our life and our time and our resources? Who, who is my neighbor? And now we get to the parable. The one we think we know. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus says. You know how this goes. He's left in the ditch for dead. Priest comes by and passes by on the other side. No reasons given, no excuse, no explanation. A Levite comes by, same thing, passes by on the other side, no reason given, no excuse, no explanation. Now you will occasionally hear sermons, and I will confess to you that I have preached them in the past, that seeks to explain away the priest and the Levite. And that usually goes something like this. If they stop and help this man in the ditch, who they assume is dead because he looks dead, then they become ritually unclean on their way to the temple to perform their service. There are two problems with that. The first is, he's not dead. He is still alive. He's still very much alive. And there is no law that prohibits them from helping him, even wounded as he is, and fulfilling their service. In fact, there are laws that command them to. And the second problem may be greater than the first if we read the parable carefully. They are not on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus says the priest came down the road. That's not a southernism, that's a literal description. He's traveling in the same direction the man was, from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's not traveling toward his religious duty, he's traveling away from the temple. So is the Levite. They have no reason not to stop. And had they been going the other way, they wouldn't have seen him in the ditch in the first place. They cross over and they pass him by. And then the Samaritan, enemy of everything related to Judaism, the Samaritan comes by, sees the man in the ditch, gets off his donkey, gets into the ditch, bandages him, 
places him on his donkey, takes him, cares for him, opens a tab for him at the end. Van Gogh has a beautiful painting of that moment, of really the critical moment in the story. The, the Samaritan is trying to get the man onto his donkey. Painting's beautiful. He's even bent over backwards from the weight of the man trying to push him up on the animal. And if you look at that painting, what you will see on the left-hand side receding toward the background are two figures whose faces you cannot see because their backs are to you as they are leaving and heading to the horizon. Go home and Google it. It's a beautiful painting. Because at that moment in the story, Jesus reframes the question. In fact, at that moment, Jesus reframes the whole story. He asks the lawyer, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the answer is obvious, right? But he's changed the question. The question is no longer, who is my neighbor? The question is, who was the neighbor to the man in the ditch? And I want to suggest to you that Jesus is suggesting to the lawyer, and maybe to you and me, that when you listen to the parable, you're not so much the Samaritan. You're not even the priest or the Levite. You're the person in the ditch. You're the person in need of help. And that changes what's going on with the story. So deep is the animosity between Judaism and Samaria that in answering the question, the lawyer cannot even say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. The answer means, the one whose help I would never accept helped me anyway. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Well, what does he mean? Does he mean go and show mercy? Or does he mean go and be open to the gift of someone who is other than you? Or does he mean both? Now, either way, our friend the lawyer has a problem because he can't do that. If he could do that, he would already have done it. He knew the right answer, right? Love God, love your neighbor. He just can't do it. And the same is true of us. If we could already do that, we would have. If we could see the neighbor in everyone we meet, people like us and people not like us at all, people who think like us, and people who take the opposite side of any argument that we are in, people who look like us and people who don't look like us, people who worship and pray and believe like us, and people whose experience of faith is different from ours, if we could see the neighbor in all of those people, we already would have done it. So the question really becomes, the implied question of the story becomes, what will it take? What will it take for us to learn to do what we already know we're supposed to do? What will it take for us to recognize that we've been asking the wrong question all along? We ask, what must we do? And that question presumes that eternal life is something that we can earn. It's something that we can gain. It's something that we can purchase. The question fails to recognize that eternal life comes to us as gift and grace. That it comes to us in the point of our greatest need because we are needier than we care to admit. We've asked the wrong question, 
The right question is, who is the neighbor to the person in the ditch? Who has been a neighbor to me? Who has taught me mercy? There's a modern version of the parable that goes something like this. A guy's cutting through a cemetery one night, taking a shortcut, trying to get from one place to his home, and he fell into a freshly dug grave that was there for a funeral the next day. Couldn't climb out. After he'd been there a while, he heard somebody else cutting through the cemetery, and he looks up and he sees a pastor that he knows coming through, and he calls up. He says, hey, Reverend, I'm stuck down here in the bottom of this grave. Can you help me out? Pastor stops and writes out a prayer and drops it into the grave for him. A few minutes later, he hears somebody else coming through, and he looks up, and it's a local attorney he knows, and he says, Hey, lawyer, I'm stuck down here at the bottom of this grave. Can you help me out? And the lawyer looks down in the grave and tosses his business card in and says, Call me, and walks on. After a while, he hears someone else coming through the cemetery, and he looks up, and he sees it's his friend and his neighbor, and he calls out. He says, Hey, Joe, I'm stuck down here in this grave. Can you help me out? And Joe jumps down into the grave with him. The guy says, are you crazy? Now we're both down here. And Joe says, I know, but I've been down here before. And I know the way out. I've been down here before. We have to admit that we've been down there before. We have to acknowledge that we've been the person in the ditch before we can help anyone else out. We have to acknowledge that we were in the ditch and in total and absolute despair, a grave, if you will, and our neighbor, Jesus, came down and lifted us up and bandaged us and healed us and showed us mercy even when, as Paul says, even when we were enemies of the cross. And when we can admit that, we can acknowledge that eternal life, both now and later, is a grace. And when we can admit that, when we can admit that we are those who needed to be rescued, then we can go and do likewise. When we acknowledge that we've received mercy, then we know how to show mercy. And then and only then can we both say and live our thanks be to God.